Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Today's guest is Tara Yornes. Now living in Canada, Tara was a former pro mountain bike racer. Tara had a really nasty mountain bike crash that left her paralyzed. She's been through some tough times, but she's come through the other side and is now thriving. Really keen to find out how she's done that and to share a little bit about her journey. Tara, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, so first off, just to set the scene, can you talk to us and let us know a little bit about your life uh, before you ended up sharing a wheelchair and and that fateful moment that uh, that set um, set the path to being in this adaptive community? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, before um, I was in a chair, I I raced mountain bikes. Uh, that was kind of my, that was my profession. Um, I'd done it for about 13, 14 years. Uh, started when I was in high school and just continued on with that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to travel the world and, and race for some amazing companies. And, uh, so I, I raced downhill and dual slalom and, um, and then in 2007, I was kind of, con- I w- well, I was contemplating retiring. I was uh, very much so. And can I ask why? You know, things had, things had really started to change in the mountain bike industry. Um, from when I first started racing, um, I, I mean, I don't want to sound too negative or anything, but there, there were a lot of women racing. Um, there were a lot of women that were, um, being paid to race and being paid the same as the men to race. Um, and there was a really deep field. Uh, the women's field was, was really deep, like to race, uh, in the U S and to get a top 10 was really difficult. Mm. Um, and they when were, I, when I, they were, they were well funded. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, they, it was, it was that for sure. And I mean, we, I think the, the U S which is where I'm originally from, um, there, it was just, a yeah, we just had a deep field of women, uh, that were just charging hard. And I mean, I got into it when I was 17, I was, I was a junior racer, 16, 17, but most of the women that were racing at the time were in their mid to late twenties. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time when mountain biking, I mean, the first mountain bike world championships were in 1990. That wasn't that long ago. <laughs> um, and I think that it was a very mature sport when it started. It wasn't 16 year olds, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part, they, these were mature adults, people that owned homes you know, some of them, a lot of them were hippies, you know, and they, that's just kind of how it, it started. It started, uh, you know, at Mount Tam in California, in Northern California. And so I think it went from, from that, from being a very mature sort of sport 
where we had riders unions where where if we went to a race you know there were women that were fighting for for equal pay uh, uh from the organizers if you placed in the top five and we got it because we had a riders union and we, we fought for that and but it took a lot of really courageous women to do that um so kind of coming into it and seeing that I, it was it was amazing you know these women were I really looked up to them. This was, they were fantastic role models. Um, they worked really hard, you know, trained just as hard as everybody else. So, um, but as mountain biking started to grow and it, and it blew up pretty quick Mm. to the point where all of a sudden, um, you know, they were looking to be in the Olympics and, you know, the very first world champs were 1990. And then we were the first Olympics that mountain biking was in was I believe 96 that was Atlanta so um you know all these outside corporate sponsors wanted to be part of it so you had almost every team had a car sponsor Volvo Subaru Toyota you name it um and and then you know other big corporate sponsors like Mountain Dew um you know so um and the list kind of goes on uh Ralph Lauren Polo Ralph Lauren sponsored wow, really? team. Holy moly. Yeah. So it was, it was, it, it went from being this real hippie sort of fringe kind of sport that you could, you could make money, but it wasn't like you were, you know, retiring when you were 25 mm-hmm. or anything to people were signing, you know, three, four, five hundred $500,000 contracts. Um, wow. you know, so it, no it, idea. it, yeah. So it turned into all of a sudden it just kind of exploded. And I think when that happened too, you know, the sport was huge. You'd go to a race and I mean, it was packed. I mean, the, the mountain was packed full of people. It was, um, so it was really, really this amazing sport to be a part of, uh, and still is, but through the years, um, things started to shift, things started to change. And there were a lot of younger people that started to race it. Um, and I think with that, uh, there wasn't as much, um, you know, a lot of the companies started to, you know, have different opinions on what people should make. And, what genders, how much they should make. And I think uh, a 16, 17 year old or even 20 year old coming into the sport isn't really going to fight so much for that because, you know, if there's less rides, if there's less, if you have a team, like when I first started racing, you, there'd be a team and it would be pretty much half women, half men. But Mm -hmm. as the years went on, like let's say there was a team with five riders on it, there'd be four men and one woman. So the rides became the, the options became less. And so I think, you know, they weren't going to say, Oh, well, I'm not going to take that amount. I want this amount because the team would just say, well, forget it. We'll just go find somebody else. So it was, I I think it kind of got, you know, uh, I think that's sort of a transition that started to happen. The field started to be, uh, less deep in terms of, you know, like you could show up at a race and, you know, without, you know, you could get a top five and it wasn't as difficult as what it used to be. Mm. So 
I think with all those changes, um, and then, and also sponsors, uh, outside sponsors weren't flooding in the sport anymore. I think it was just all of a sudden this huge boom in the, uh, late nineties. And then after that, it just kind of started to settle a little bit more. So there was a lot less outside sponsorship money. Um, so yeah, with all of that, um, I, and I was, in my late twenties, I was, I was 30 when I got hurt. Um, I, I had already thought about, okay, what am I going to do next? You know, I was riding for giant bicycles and they were fantastic sponsor. I rode for them for like five years. Um, but yeah, it was kind of getting to the point where I wanted to think about my future. Um, so and as I was, you, have it, you were, you were kind of forced to think about it in a different way. So talk us through yeah. what happened there. <laughs> yeah. As fate would have it, that's exactly what happened. Um, I was racing the finals at a, uh, a Jeep King of the mountain race. They had this series. It was a made for TV event. There were three races during the year. And this, so this was the finals. And then the next weekend, everybody that was at that race was flying to Scotland because the world championships were the next weekend. Um, and I, that was going to be my last race. Wow. Uh, and I was, I would, I would have always raced, but at that level, mm. I was going to take a step back. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, racing the Jeep King of the mountain race. It was in Colorado. It was in Vail. And, um, it was a, it was a really tricky course. There was a, 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 a difficult rhythm section in the middle of the course that were three different doubles and they were all different. One had a really lip, like a, a lippy takeoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, one had a flatter takeoff. Um, so you kind of had to just figure your speed out. Um, and I'd done it in practice a bunch of times, but still it was a bit nerve wracking going into it. Um, and so I was in the, I think it was the semifinals, uh, against Jill Kittner, uh, who's a fantastic racer. Um, and I remember I was just, I was in the gate and when, you know, they were, they'd say, you know, TV's ready. That means you got to be ready. So there's a red course and a blue course. And when you come out of the gate, you do five gates on your own course and then you merge. So then you're both on the same course. So it's sort of like dual slalom meets like uh, dual. And dual uh, is basically coming out of the gate and it's two people racing on one course together. So it's sort of merging the, t- the two sort of aspects of, of those, uh, what would you call them, disciplines, I guess. Uh, so anyway, I was in the gate and I just didn't feel ready. I didn't feel ready. I didn't, my pedal wasn't, didn't feel like it was in the right spot. My goggles didn't feel like they were sitting right. Like Mm -hmm. just, I don't know. It was just something that I distinctly remember. Um, and they said, all right, camera ready, you know, or TV ready, red course, ready, blue course, ready. And then the gate opened. And so I went, um, but I felt very, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird now that I, you know, now that it's been years and, and, you know, I've had lots of time to think about it. It's almost like I had this premonition, something, Mm. you know, was just a ride. It wasn't right. So anyway, um, Jill was ahead of me 
she was way ahead of me. She was blowing my doors off. Um, but you get two chances. So you, you race once. So if she, if she's in the blue course, you go down, you race. If she beats me by a certain, let's say it's 0.5, we go back up, we switch courses and then we do it again. Then I've got to beat her by more than 0.5 to advance. So I I wasn't going to just stop, you know, racing, even though she was ahead of me, I was, you know, going to keep going. So I was coming into that rhythm section and I just remember thinking, jump it. No, don't jump it. Jump it. Don't jump it. And, and having this sort of inner monologue of, you know, confusion as to, you know, should I just cruise down and then fight it out in the next one? Or should I just keep going? Cause you never know she could crash. Turns out she did. She crashed in the next turn all by herself. Um, but as I was coming into the rhythm section, I botched it. And there was a, a roller that you would lift, you would lift up for it and, and push down on the backside in order to get more speed to hit the first of the three jumps. Mm-hmm. And somehow, I don't even know how, but I, I must've tapped the, the top of it or something. And so I was, I was going pretty fast and then I just piled, I just piled drive my head straight into the lip of the jump I was supposed to take off from. Oh. So, and I, there was so much force that when I did that, I broke C7 wow. in my, in my neck and then my body had nowhere to go. So it just scorpioned all the way up over me. And then that's what broke, uh, what was it? T, T12. So yeah, I just, um, I distinctly remember where, right when that happened and I just came to a dead stop. And then my body rolled back down the lip of the jump Mm. and my legs, I could just feel, I could still feel them. And they were just sort of flopping. I could feel that it was like, I could feel them, but they were sort of disconnected from my body. Mm. Um, Did you know, did you know at that moment, when did you come to that realization that you had broken your back and your neck? Well, I think it really, I really, really knew probably about, I don't know, three, four minutes later, because literally right where I crashed was right where the paramedics were sitting. So they were there in a matter of like 30 seconds. Um, so immediately, you know, I'm, you know, they're talking to me and they're asking me all these questions and, I'm kind of starting to freak out a little bit. And they asked me, you know, can you feel this? Can you feel this? And I was like, feel what? And then I knew, then I knew, then I kind of started having a freak out. Um, a friend of mine that was, that was racing, um, Bryn, he was standing right there. And I just remember looking at him and just saying, I want to ride my bike again. I want to ride my bike again. And I must've freaked him out, you know, because he's just watching this happen and I'm having this whole life changing moment. Um, so I mean, and I, and I remember there being a lot of pain. I remember telling the paramedics that it, like, it literally felt like the top half of my body was laying on a curb. And then the bottom half was like slinking down the other end of the curve. Like 
it felt like there was a log underneath my low back. It was just this really weird feeling. And I kept saying to the paramedics, is there something underneath my back? Can you take it out? Cause it's really painful. And just the look on their face, you know, uh, that's all I had to, they didn't even have to say anything. I just had to look at their face and I knew it was going to be a long road ahead. So, so yeah. talk us through, talk us through the next, the next sort of phases, and particularly for for our listeners, I want to I want to get a sense of where where you were where you were rock bottom, and how you found yourself clawing yourself back out of that position. How what you know, I know what it was like feeling as though I'd never or knowing or thinking that I'd never ride a bike again, for example, and knowing how the deepest despair sank in. Like, how did you find yourself um, coping with that? And how did you pull yourself out of, out of those, those dark moments? Oh boy. Um, Well, you know, I, it, it didn't really, I think it happened for me a, a lot later um, because I think when you first, at least in my experience, when, when, when I was first hurt, I always thought that I was going to walk out of my rehab hospital. Mm. Like I, I, I had zero doubt in my head. I just felt like, yep, I'm going to go in, I'm going to have surgery. You know, I'm going to start to get feeling back. I'm going to just, my legs are going to start moving and we're going to be good. Mm. And you do, so you hang on to that hope for quite a while thinking that, yeah, just keep positive. And because they, they tell you that it takes six months for the toxic shock not the toxic, sorry, the um, spinal shock to, uh, you know, the, the swelling to subside. And that's when you get a real sense of what, uh, what function you'll have. Mm-hmm. So I can relate to that for sure. So sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, I think it's, 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 um, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing either. You know, that hope, I mean, if you go directly in and they say, all right, on day one, this is it, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're kind of, <laughs> you, you just, that hope is just ripped away from you. So I, I think it's a, a good thing in, in hindsight that I had that because to be quite honest, the whole time that I was in the hospital and my rehab hospital at Craig in Denver, um, it was, it I only remember good things. I only remember, um, you know, all of my amazing nurses and physios and, and having fun there. It was, I really did. It just so happened that when I was there, there was this group, this group of people that young, you know, like, you know, twenties, um, that happened to be there. Um, and, and actually, (laughs) Uh, on a bit of a side note, um, a friend of mine that I had known for years, uh, I don't know if you know who Stephen Murray is. Um, no, I don't. but he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's amazing. You should look him up. Um, and he's from the UK and he raced freestyle BMX and he had become a quadriplegic not long before me. And I had actually sent uh, money to him, uh, to help, you know, and 
my, when I got hurt, my mom came to the hospital and she brought my mail and in it was a thank you card. And Stephen was at Craig. He and I were now at Craig hospital together in rehab. <laughs> so it was just this crazy time. But, um, but yeah, when I was there, I had, I had loads of hope. I, you know, was like, I'm going to walk out of here. No big deal. We're going to work our butts off at physio. We're going to get strong, all these things. Um, and so that was super helpful to have that. And then for me, honestly, the hardest part was when I went home. When I went back to California, um, you know, first off, my where I lived, I had a condo and it was like three levels. It was, mm. and so I couldn't live there anymore, but I wasn't really sure what to do. Um, but my mom had a single level rancher home that I grew up in and it was only like 20 minutes from where I lived. So we decided to switch homes and she lived at my place. And I, I mean, I, I was really fortunate that we had that because she didn't have to make any changes to the house. I could, I could manage in the entire house, the shower, everything. Wow, nice. Um, yeah. So I got really lucky there, but it was also on top of a really big hill and I didn't have a car yet. Um, and so that was one of the darkest times for me because when you're in the hospital too, you have so much support, mm. you know, you have so many people are calling you and messaging you and what can we do and sending you flowers. And I mean, I had so much support and not to say that I didn't have that support when I went home, but you know, people get on with their lives. People have their own lives to live and you know, it had been. I don't know, four or five months since I was hurt. And now I was home and, you know, feeling pretty alone. Um, I had a partner at the time and she lived there as well. Um, but just the rest of the support, like, you know, when I was in physio, I just felt like I had this warm hug around me all the time. Mm. And you have all these people around you and you have all these you know, the hospital is made for people in chairs. So you're not struggling with anything. Everything's really accessible. And then, you know, not that, that the house that I was living in, that was accessible, but you know, now I was in the real world. Now I had to manage this real world. And, um, so how did you, how did you do that? What were some of the things that you remember, some of the resources or people or, uh, or, you know, just some of the things that you, you help. I mean, obviously it's a personal thing. You've just got to go through it and find your own way, right? And find ways of doing things. There's no, there's no easy way to get through those times. And, uh, but surely there, uh, you know, there, there's definitely role models and, and people that, that can sort of show you what's possible and, and guide you in certain aspects of a new adaptive life. So you, you end up, you know, you, you use a manual wheelchair. So that's your, that's your primary means of mobility, right? So what, what mm -hmm. other things did you find helpful to help you come out of that, you know, that dark, that dark time, that time where you, you realized, oh crap, I, I am, I am quite alone here. What, what were some useful things you found? Uh, well, it was really people. It was really, you know, um, I had started to go to project walk, uh, down in San Diego and what I do think, they do? are they a rehab based, uh, 
um, organization? Yeah, they are. They are. And now they've, uh, I think they've got, I think at the time when I was going there, that, that might've been the only project walk. I'm not totally sure, but now there's, there's others. Um, and, uh, and so how did you yeah. pay for that? Were you, did you have insurance? I did have insurance. Um, but I mean, there was a, there was a, a limit to that and they'd only pay for, for so much. So there was, a fair amount that I was paying out of pocket. Um, you know, racing mountain bikes is a difficult thing to get insurance for. (laughs) And, um, and I mean, every time I would sign a contract with a different team, that was one of the first things I would ask was I want to be on your company insurance. I'll even take less money to do so. Mm. Um, but they would never do it. We were always, we were always independent contractors. They would consider us because, and they would say, well, you're only racing six months out of the year, even though you're training 11 months, you know, 11 and a half months out of the year and you're actually on your bike training. Um, so that was always something that was a tricky thing to get around. So I, I did have insurance, but it, it cost me a lot. Um, and then once I needed to use it, you know, it was, I only had so much that I, that I had available to me. So, um, luckily, you know, while I was in the hospital, it was, it wasn't a GoFundMe. It was, um, another sort of fundraiser that, um, my family had, had done. And that's the money that I ended up using to pay for the other half of the physio that I had to shell out. Mm. Um, so I was, and I was going there three times a week. So it was, it was expensive for sure. So, um, so aside yeah, from so the obvious physical benefits, you're saying <laughs> it was an opportunity to, to have some goals, I suppose, and to, to have something to go and do and to meet a group of people and other people, presumably with spinal cord injuries that, you know, you could bounce ideas off and, and see, see possibilities. Right. So would you recommend something like that to, to anyone listening? That's, uh, that's maybe new, newly injured? I would, I really would. Um, I mean, for me, I loved just being physical. I, I wanted to get back to my, um, my, my physical self that, that I was before. So anything that I could do that helped me push that. And there were so many other, I mean, I, I was up, you know, walking on a treadmill, um, you know, doing tons of stretches. I mean, all these things I think are super important, uh, and, and vital to our, our bodies, keeping limber, keeping, um, you know, your hips, um, stretched out, things like that. Uh, your hips, your knees, your ankles, um, getting good blood flow. Um, and so that was one aspect of it. And another aspect was, yeah, was being around other people that were going through the same thing that I was going through. Um, I think for me, that was, well, I know it was really healing. Um, you know, I met so many amazing people there that I could, I could talk to freely. You know, once you leave a rehab hospital, I've actually just recently just been in touch with a a girl that was hurt on her motorcycle. And I think she's uh, from Australia actually. And, you know, I just said, Hey, you know, you can ask me anything. 
because once you leave a rehab hospital, you have literally had anybody doing anything to you and you have, you lose all semblance of like shyness, you know? So, um, you know, so having these conversations with, with people at rehab, you know, about issues, you know, whether it was a skin sore or, you know, whatever it was, um, it, it felt good to be able to just talk to someone else that was going through what I was going through. Um, or even a mental sort of, you know, issue or emotional, you know, it's all, it's physical, mental, emotional, all of it. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really healing thing for me and to see others really push it and all of us push it together. It was, it was kind of like the same kind of group that I had at Craig hospital. I had this other really amazing group at project walk as well, where we were pushing each other all the time and like cheering each other on. And, you know, I think we all needed that right at that moment. So, um, meeting those people, um, you know, Where some of them are lifelong friends. What are some other organizations that you'd recommend? I mean, they're, they're obviously spread across countries and, and, and whatnot. Um, so you, you've, you've also got some physiotherapy based organizations like project walk, but Surely there's uh, there's other organizations out there that maybe helped you as well. You naming those? Yeah, well, CAF helped me. Uh, CAF, which is the Challenged Athletes Foundation, they really helped me. Um, in the beginning, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I think a lot of people just automatically said, you should get into hand cycling um, because, uh, you know, I was a, I, that's what I did. I, I raced bikes. So I think that was the automatic go-to and a lot of people were, you know, trying to get me into that. And so I did. Um, and I would go out and, um, that's, uh, a bit how I, how I met, uh, Aaron Baker and, and I'll tell you about him in a second. But when I did get into hand cycling more, um, and thought about actually doing some triathlons, um, I was riding a lot with, uh, Ricky James, and David Bailey and doing these long rides and just training and CAF gave me a hand cycle and a, um, uh, like a race chair. And so that was, that was huge. You know, I was getting more and more involved with CAF and Bob Babbitt who helps run CAF and just a wonderful man. And, um, cause there's so expensive was, pieces of equipment, right? I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the drawbacks and one of the things that hold people back is, is equipment cost. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's like, you know, for anyone in a chair, there's a different piece of equipment for each sport. So, you know, if you want to go play basketball, you're not just going to buy a ball and have a pair of shoes. You gotta, you have to buy a basketball chair and that's, you know, anywhere from probably five to $8,000. And then if you want to go for a hand cycle, right, you got to go buy a hand cycle. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of uh, different equipment involved for sure. Uh, And some equipment can be interchangeable like basketball and tennis. You can, you know, use a lot of the times you can use the same chair, Mm -hmm. but yeah, the equipment does cost a lot. And so, I mean, for CAF to, to give me those pieces of equipment um, were huge in, in helping me keep a good mental state. And, um, to keep me involved in sport, because to me, sport was, 
that was everything. It was how I identified myself. Um, I, I always played sports. And so, um, without it, it was kind of odd. So I, yeah, I was super fortunate to have CAF, uh, support me in that way. Uh, and I continued to, to race hand cycles. Um, and I think right about that time, maybe I had gone to, there's a huge race every year. It's called the sea otter classic and it's in Northern California. It's a huge mountain. It's basically a mountain bike festival. And so it was about a year after my injury. So it was around 2008, um, probably March, 2008 or maybe 2009 actually. Um, and I went just to, you know, those were, those were the people that I grew up racing with. So I went just to be part of my sort of tribe again, you know, part of my community. And I happened to be sitting under the tent and this guy rolls up on a trike. It was basically like a road bike with two wheels, two road wheels in the back. It was specially made for him. And Tara, how did it make you feel to be at that event, to see all those people riding mountain bikes and, and things like that? Uh, uh, it was, it was difficult. It was really difficult. I mean, it, there were, there were aspects of it that were fantastic. You know, it was, I was really pulled in a couple, in two different directions of, I'm so glad I'm back here in my community and I get to see everyone. But I also felt a sense of, um, I mean, how do I say this? Well, yeah, definitely that. I definitely had some grief around it and, and real sadness. Um, and I, but, and I mean, I knew, I knew everyone there was there and very, very supportive, but I felt a certain, uh, amount of, I don't know if pity is the right word. I'm not really sure if I'm choosing the right word here, yeah. but, um, and I could feel that, right? Like people just, you could tell they were looking at you and they felt bad for you. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't like, so it was this weird sort of emotional thing because, um, yeah, I, and I was still figuring it out myself. You know, I, I, I didn't know what my future held. I didn't know what was going to happen. So, um, yeah, so I always found that going and doing things for the first time post accident. So maybe go to a, go to a, a mountain bike race or even just going away to visit friends that you haven't seen since you've been in your chair is really difficult. But at the same time, it's, it's like, it's almost like you have to do it. And then the next time it's a lot easier. So, you know, those, those first emotional reactions, as part of getting over that and moving on, it's really tough. And and I once I figured that out, I actually just I made a point of going and putting myself in those situations um, as soon as I could, or if the opportunity arose to go and uh, you know go to, if in your case, a mountain bike event, then I would do it because I knew that I'd have this you know strong emotional reaction and I'd feel pretty sad but it was almost like it was part of recovery was actually facing up to those facts and that reality and then moving on you know do you get a sense yeah. of that yeah yeah no absolutely just you hit the nail on the head i think it's it's a 
it's a necessary thing um, to just go back. And, and yeah, that first time it's, you're just, it's so overwhelming. Um, and, and, you know, maybe you're not really sure what to do with all of the emotions or what they all really mean. Um, but then the next time it's a little easier and the next time and the next time, I mean, it was for me and it may not be for some, for some, you know, it, 20 years down the road, it may be just as difficult. And I, and, um, but for me, it's, it's gotten easier, um, being in that community, um, not being able to, to race that one's always really stuck with me and stung a bit. Um, because I mean, I ride a mountain bike now, um, but it's not, it's not the same. You know, it won't, it won't, that particular thing won't ever be the same for me. Mm. Um, and you know, I think it's a matter of just coming to terms with that. And some people can, some people can't. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, there were, there were definitely a, a lot of emotions around that, that first time back in that setting. Um, so you met a guy and I presume this is Aaron on a, on a trike. And what, what was it like seeing, seeing that? Well, he just sort of rocked up and just started this conversation with me. And I'm like, who is this guy? And we must've talked for like two hours, just (laughs) talked. And I just felt like it was one of those things. It was like this, we just connected from the second he rolled up. We just had this connection. It was just crazy. It was like, I'd known him my whole life. And so he, he got hurt racing motocross. He was a young up and coming motocross guy, he just signed a contract with a big team and was out on their practice track and botched a rhythm section or something to that effect. And, you know, so, and became a quadriplegic. Um, and so anyway, we chatted for a couple of hours and, and he was on this, this tour. He had this, this, uh, big like RV bus and he was there with his mom and his sister And, um, so I met them that weekend and they lived, uh, just above LA. So we didn't live that far from each other. And they, he was doing this ride across the U S with his mom. They'd started, uh, on a, they started doing it on a tandem and then they'd done it for like three years in a row or something. And then he got to the point where he was strong enough where he could ride the bike himself and he got a custom made trike. And so anyway, we were just, we would just chat and chat and chat. And then once, you know, the the weekend was over, we kept talking and then we just started hanging out like every weekend I was either hanging out with him or he was down at my place and we just became really, really quick friends. And he's younger than I am by, I'm not sure how many years, I want to say like five years or something, but I swear he's way older than me in terms of (laughs) like though, just the way he carries himself, he's just very mature. And he taught me so much, um, just about the injury, about how to deal with the injury. Um, all the things that he went through, he was super open with his feelings and, and how it all went for him. Can you share a couple, uh, of, couple of things that specific things that, that he shared with you that, that have, that have stuck with you that you thought were important and might be 
might be good for our listeners to to hear? Oh, well, geez. He's he's had a lot of nuggets of wisdom, but um I don't know. I don't know if you would call this necessarily that, but it's something that I'll never forget, a conversation that we had. Um and I I asked him, I said, you know, if you could if you could change things, if you could go back, like would you you know, would you be walking? Would you change your life from the way it is now and, and, you know, be upright? Well, although he, he can to be, uh, fair, he, he, he can walk. Um, he walks with a cane. It's very, he's got to be very concentrated with the steps, but he can do it, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I was, I'm talking pre, you know, broken neck. And he said, um, no, he goes, I wouldn't change a thing. And I remember just looking at him and I was still only a year and a half, maybe year, year and a half into my injury. And, um, I just looked at him. I said, you're full of shit. I was like, I don't believe you for a second. You know I mean? But he had already been through this huge process and he had already been in a chair for probably like 10 years uh, or, you know, in that, in that part of his life for 10 years. And, uh, you know, he goes, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. You know, he said that the things that I know now and the things that I've gone through have made me who I am. And this is who I'm supposed to be. He goes, before I got hurt, I was like a, you know, snotty nosed mm-hmm. kid who ran around, you know, and, you know, got into this and got into that. And, um, you know, this, this whole thing has taught me so much about who I am as a person. And I just, when he said that, you know, I I still, I was like, yeah, yeah, right. Whatever, whatever. I don't, you know, but years down the road that has always stuck with me because Mm -hmm. I think it very much, um, I can, I very much, relate and understand what he meant by that. It took me years to really fully understand it, but I, I finally did. And if somebody now asked me the same question, I'd most likely say the same as him because the person that I was then, even though I, you know, thought I I wasn't half bad, (laughs) but the, the things that I've learned since um, and the, and the person that I am now, I don't know that I ever would have got to this sort of a, a deeper sort of me it, had I not had this sort of accident. Maybe I would have, who knows, but I just have this feeling that I wouldn't have. And I'm, I'm thankful for a lot of the things that I've gone through and had to realize and had to really force myself. I didn't have a choice. I had to force, you know, I was forced into, having to deal with certain things and, and really digging deep into who you are. Um, and so that's, that's definitely, have. I reckon that that resilience, that quality is, is, is a really, really important thing to, to have. And, and for those of you that are listening that, that don't have a disability, that aren't, uh, that aren't a wheelchair user, I, I encourage you to go out and, and, Test your comfort zones as often as you can, and put yourself into situations where you're un- uncomfortable. Because, look, I, I, I feel that my previous experiences with mountaineering and and uh, 
you know, sailing across oceans, uh, put me in good stead to cope with uh, being a wheelchair user and and dealing with a spinal cord injury. You know, like if you live your life in a, it's such a comfortable bubble, then you're just not prepared for you're just not prepared for uh, for the for the unknown and for for really tough situations like this. Um, yeah. Hey, so how how do you how do you see yourself now and and how do you live your life now and, and um what what I should say is yeah how do you live now compared to your own early preconceptions of life in a wheelchair so um ha- have your have your perceptions of life in a wheelchair changed yeah i mean i i feel like so much has changed so so much has changed um you know in the beginning um so i i actually moved from California and I grew up in the States, uh, and moved to Canada. I uh, got, uh, married and moved to Canada, not that long after my injury. Um, and I'll just kind of throw this in as a little kind of, uh, blip only because I feel like some people that may be listening may go through something similar to this. Um, but when I was kind of in that deep, dark time. Um, and even when I moved up, especially when I wasn't around Aaron anymore and I had that really positive influence on me all the time. And I moved up here and I really didn't know many people at all. I didn't really know anybody. Um, I, I was kind of fell into a bit of a, a depression really. Um, on top of the fact that I was being prescribed medic, you know, medication, you know, I was Oxycontin and, and I, I think it's something important to sort of bring up and I don't want to get into a, a big negative, you know, dark circle or anything, but yeah. I think it's, it's important to realize that, um, things like that can happen. And when you, you have, when you're in this state of, of your, your whole life being sort of turned upside down and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, um, and then you're being given all of this medication, you know, I definitely abused that, um, on a, on a pretty heavy scale. Um, and so for me, so back to your, your sort of question, part of what got me out of, of that once I was up here was being, getting involved in sport and being around other wheelchair users, similar to what happened when I was, when I was going to project walk. Those were the, the, when I was around people and doing something physical and around people that could understand me and I could understand them fully and didn't, you know, wasn't just rolling down a sidewalk and people were staring at me because I'd always feel very like, what are they looking at? What are they staring at? I I felt very Mm. um, insecure at the time uh, in the beginning. Um, You know, it was good to be around people that other wheelchair users and it made me feel so much better. Um, so when I, it took years, once I moved to Canada, it probably was, I don't know, um, four years after I'd been here Mm. till I started playing sport. And once that happened, I started playing tennis. And once I was around others that were playing sports, it was just like this whole world opened up for me. And, um, it was just 
it was incredible. Uh, you know, I realized that I could be an athlete again. I could be a high level athlete and, you know, there were opportunities, um, you know, if I wanted to try to go to the Paralympics and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, so that's yeah, a long I, time for you to figure that out. Sounds like it took you a long time to get into that groove. And, and would you say that, you know, the Oxycontin, you know, I've heard that's a big problem and I, I know people in New Zealand and, and others have been prescribed, you know, heavy, heavy duty painkillers and they get hooked on them and then they, they just in this sort of funk, they're not themselves, you know, they can't think clearly. You know, I, I always had in my mind that I was going to, I was going to quit any, any pain medications as soon as I possibly could. And just so I could get that clarity again. Um, so I guess to do, uh, I mean, did you feel as though that those, those pain medications were, were holding you back? I guess is the question. Yeah, I really do. I really, they, they were, um, just this huge negative, um, sort of mark that it was just this, I mean, a very dark cloud. And I think it just compounded the fact that, you know, um, it was a, a very depressing time and it just, it made things even worse. And in the beginning, uh, I was in quite a bit of pain, like at my re my original rehab hospital. So I could understand having pain medication and mm. things like that there. But, um, uh, you know, yeah, once I left and I was back at home, I still had pain for sure. And I think th things have really changed too, because I've been in a chair now like 11 years and I, it's not that I don't have pain. I do. I still have a fair bit of nerve pain, but I think over time you just get used to it. Mm. And, you know, like, I mean, it just, it might, it might be the same, but I, I don't feel it the same because I'm so used to it now. And I'm willing um, to bet that when you're playing sport, you're not feeling it. I'm willing to bet that when you're hitting tennis, tennis balls around the court or you're shooting hoops, you're not, you're not feeling your pain. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm not, I don't ever feel pain when I'm playing sport. I'm so into what I'm doing and I'm so concentrated on that, um, that I don't. And it's just this huge positive outlet, uh, in, in every way. So talk to us about how you got involved with wheelchair tennis and where that's taken you and, and yeah, what that's meant for your life. And same, same goes for basketball because you're, you're in the Canadian basketball team, right? And so talk, talk to us about that journey back to competitive sport. Yeah. So, um, it was, again, it was years after, um, I was, in a chair, um, probably by the time. So I was hurt in 2007 and I don't think I started playing tennis until 2012, 2013, maybe. Um, and my partner, uh, we're, we live in North Vancouver and we'd been, we got this house in 2010 and we had no idea that there was an indoor tennis court two blocks over. Hmm. We didn't know for a couple of years. And so she was out walking the dog uh, one night and my birthday was coming up 
And she saw the court and decided to just go in and say, Hey, do you guys do wheelchair tennis? You know, I want to get a, a lesson for my partner. And the person that just so happened to be in the lobby was the wheelchair tennis coach just standing there. <laughs> so it was just this, like the, the events that happen. Sometimes I just shake my head because you just, you look back on all the things and how they happened. And, you know, it's like, I kind of feel like we really, as much as we want control of, of, of life, it's sort of like things just sort of happen the way they're supposed to happen. That's what I kind of feel like. And so she was standing there, Elodie walked in, she got me a lesson and I went like a week later and I loved it. I loved it. I, I, I never played tennis growing up. So I think that was really amazing in the beginning, you know, especially because I had nothing to compare it to. With mountain biking, I had something to compare it to. So I was sort of deterred from it a bit because I just was like, well, this isn't the same. But with tennis, you know, it's like, well, I don't know what it's supposed to feel like in the first place. So this is great. So <laughs> I just kind of went, yeah, I just, I just went straight for it. I started playing tennis like full time. Um, it was really accessible. I could roll over to the courts. Um, and, and that was it. So I, I started playing and played for about three years and kind of got to the provincial level, made it to the national team and, um, and was, and was playing and, and it was great. Um, and right around the same time, about my third year, the beginning of my third year, I kept bumping into, um, a woman who had played on the Paralympic team, the Rio basketball Paralympic team who lived in BC. Mm. Uh, her name's Amanda. And she, we would work, work out at the same gym and she's like, Hey, you should come play basketball. And, um, when I was in my first rehab hospital at Craig, we were in the gym doing chair skills one day and we, we played sports. Like every Friday we'd play some different sport, like a game of some sort. And I remember getting a basketball and trying to shoot and I played uh, competitive basketball in high school. So I played, I, I knew how to play, played for years. Um, but I remember grabbing that basketball and trying to shoot it. And I was literally right under the hoop. I was like, you couldn't have been any closer and I couldn't even get it to the bottom of the net. <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, I was super weak, you know, I was just had two surgeries, you know, but these are all things that I didn't even think to consider. I just saw, I couldn't even get it to the basket. And I remember right then and there, I said, I'm never playing basketball again. Wow. I literally, I said that out loud. And I, so I never, I didn't pick up a basketball again until, you know, whatever, how many, eight, nine years later. Um, and it was just kind of that time in my life and it just kind of came full circle. And so I went, so I went out to a couple basketball practices and I was like, wow, this is different. You know, I'm stronger. I'm have more of my wits about me and things were just different. And I was able to go out and start playing basketball and, you know, went to uh, what we call carding camp, uh, which is basically where you go. It's in Toronto and you, it's where you go to make the national team to try out for the national team. You go through a week of testing and you're on court with the team. And then you find out at the end of the week, if you make the team. Mm. Um, so made the team. Um, and so this was my first year on the national team and, um, yeah, it's just kind of, sometimes I just, it just blows me away. Like just how, 
I don't know, just how life happens, I guess. And, um, so you know, are, I, are these, are these professional sports as tennis and basketball? Can you, can you earn a living doing those, those things? Well, when you, so when you make the national team, you're paid by the government. Um, so you, and you are allowed to get outside sponsorship. So I guess technically speaking, yes, you'd be considered a professional athlete. Um, mm. you don't make tons of money. Um, and there's different levels of carding that you get. Um, so like for instance, I'm not on a, a senior, uh, card yet because like this last year was my first year. So you can be bumped up, um, depending on what the coach and then the national organization sees for you in your future. Mm. Um, so, but yes, you, you do get here in Canada paid, uh, by the government, um, to, to be able to play your sport and play for, for your country. So yeah, it's, it's pretty unreal. Um, so I, that's what I get to do. I mean, I have my own business as well, but I do train pretty full time. Tell us about your business. What, what, uh, what line of work are you in and how did, how did you start that business? Uh, well, I, so I sell adaptive mountain bikes. So, um, kind of getting back to my roots a bit Cool. and <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been pretty unreal actually to see the sport, uh, adaptive mountain biking really in the last couple of years, it's really taken off. Um, I, when I moved to Canada, um, I, you know, really wanted to get back out on the mountain, but they're really, I couldn't find any sort of equipment that could really do what I wanted to do. I wanted to go downhill and I wanted to have suspension and, you know, um, all these things. And, um, I didn't want to just be on a hand cycle on the road. Mm. And so, um, some friends of mine, um, found this bike that was built in Poland. It was called a sport on bike. And, um, they wanted to do a fundraiser. And so they did a fundraiser to buy this bike for me. And so they, they bought it and they brought it in from, from Poland. And, um, so I was able to get back out on the mountain. It was just incredible. Um, you know, even though it's a different sort of experience now, I'm still being out on the mountain. I very much enjoy, especially being out with friends. Um, so yeah, so I got that bike and then, um, I was trying to then figure out, you know, well, what am I, you know, what am I kind of doing with my life in terms of a job and making money and, you know, how surviving, you know? Mm. And, um, so I contacted, um, the guy that owns sport on and I, cause I noticed that they don't actually, there's no, there was no person really selling them in Canada. Mm. And, um, so I said, Hey, you know, I've got a bit of a background in, in mountain biking, you know, what do you think? Can I, I'd like to sell these bikes here in Canada. And so we worked it out and I started selling them and I didn't know anything about selling anything. Let me be clear. Like <laughs> I was, I, I basically, it was just a cold call and I said, I want to sell these. And then he said, yes. And then I was like, okay, now what do I do? So it was kind of one of those situations. But, um, my partner, LED was, she'd been in sales for 15 years. She, she had been the Shimano rep, uh, for BC. So she, you know, she really taught me a lot in how to, in how to sell bikes and how to just all the different, uh, avenues of, of just everything and how you, 
how you do business. So um, I learned a lot from her and she still, you know, continues. If I still have a tricky question, I'm like, what, you know, what, what would you do in this situation? Um, and so anyway, yeah, I started selling the bikes probably in 2013 and just started building the, the, the business. And then it sort of, you know, I kind of was, um, realizing that it, I, I didn't want to just sell the bikes. I wanted to help if, if at all possible to grow the actual sport of adaptive mountain biking, um, and, and work with adaptive organizations to show them the bike and hopefully they would then purchase the bike and then people could rent them because they're expensive, you know? So for someone to just buy one sight unseen, which a lot of people have done, um, is, you know, to me, it's like, whoa, you know, that's a really big commitment. And I understand I'm in a chair. I've had to buy a lot of equipment myself. And, you know, if you don't have insurance purchasing it for you to help out and, you know, or, or a GoFundMe or whatever, you know, but you want to get out and keep, you know, I don't know. I think it's mentally it's, it's, and emotionally, it's really helpful to be outside and just, you know, getting those endorphins going and just doing something active. Mm. Um, it's important in the recovery process, I find. So I started working with adaptive organizations and Whistler Adaptive bought three bikes and now people can go up there, rent the bike which people have done. And then they, you know, if they like it, great. Then they'll, then if they can buy one, they buy one. If not, they just keep renting from them. Mm. Um, and there's, yeah, there's just a whole, there's loads of people. So the sport's really grown a lot and it's, there's a lot of different tentacles, you know, there's different, there's adaptive trails now, um, purpose built adaptive trails, uh, adaptive mountain biking organizations being started. So, um, it's cool to see how much it's grown. Nice one. That's so cool. So what does the future hold for you? What are what are your ambitions coming up? What's oh wow. Um you're gonna carry on with the basketball? Is that that's still a focus of yours? Yeah, it's a it's a big focus of mine. I'd really, really like to try to make the Paralympic team for 2020 um in Tokyo. Um I'm definitely the senior member on the team <laughs> in terms of age. So, you know, I feel like um I wanna just I really want to focus on that and, and really make the team for 2020. Um, and beyond we'll see, we'll see how the body holds up. Um, (laughs) but so, yeah, I'd love to just continue with that. Um, and, uh, and still selling the, the adaptive mountain bikes and hopefully grow that business even more. Um, and then who knows? I mean, since I've started playing basketball, I've kind of, it's opened my eyes up a bit more to coaching possibly. Um, so it's just something that's I've started to think about recently and we'll see where that goes. No, no, no for sure's, but, um, I see how much it's, it, it can, it can change lives. Um, you know, if I go to like a, a weekend where someone's just recently injured and they're just trying basketball and I see where they're at, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, I know where you're at. I so know where you're at, you know? And, um, so to be able to help in that, in that way, or just be a sounding board, you know, um, would be pretty amazing. I reckon you'd make a fantastic coach. You've got 
you've got the physical experience, the and the psychological experience, and and that real uh, empathy. I can I can get a sense of that. You know, I think you'd you'd be fantastic. But I've no doubt you're also a fierce competitor, and I, I've no doubt you've got many years ahead of competitive sports. So <laughs> I look forward to uh, what the future holds there, and, and I wish you good luck for the 2020 uh, push. Yeah, of, uh, yeah. That you put everything into it. And so, do you have any? Uh, do you have any any wheelchair life hacks you'd like to share? Like if, if you're if you're thinking about somebody who's maybe just just fresh out of out of rehab and they're home alone and they're going, what the heck? What would you say to them um, to help them in the next stage of their uh, of their life? Oh boy, um, you know, I thought <laughs> I really did think a lot about that one um, when we first started messaging, and you were talking about life hacks, and I just, I, I was just, I totally was drawing a blank in terms of uh, you know specifics. Um, I, I know that there's a lot of things I've, I've done, um, but just couldn't really think of any, uh, which is a bit disappointing. Um, well, earlier I mean, I've done mentioned stretching, you know, and, and keeping your body, uh, you know, physically in, in good condition and getting the blood flow. So, um, that's, that's one example. Um, what about, uh, what about shoulder health, uh, for example, or, um, or even just just a, a mental a mental a mental trick. I mean, we've actually covered quite a lot of ground, and there's lots of lots of that there. Anything else that we you feel we haven't covered or I haven't asked you that you'd like to share? Um, I mean, I I'm not really I'm not totally sure if this is a, a life hack, but something that I've used for years um, that I find really helpful in terms of keeping my hips um, stretched out, my knees. Um, and keeping really good blood flow, uh, is a standing frame. Um, and I've, I've happened to be in conversations with other people in chairs that have, that don't use one or that I've actually never even heard of one. And which blows my mind because there's so many positive things about getting in a standing frame. Um, you know, your, your digestion, your blood flow, your bones and your feet, because you're not standing on them all the time. So like I've even seen the shape of my feet sort of change a little bit because they're not being stood on uh, and walked on all the time. So getting in the standing frame really helps, but mainly my, like for me, my hips get really, really tight. Um, And that ultimately when my hips are tight and they don't lay flat and then my knees aren't they don't straighten all the way because you're sitting in a chair 90% of the time. Um, then when I go to lay down, my back, my low back is really, it's not flat. It's bowed because it's trying to compensate for all the other bends in my body. Um, so I, I really would say staying limber um, and, and stretching and trying to keep your, your knees straight and flat being able to, to have that flexibility. And, you know, some people for me, I couldn't continue to go to, to physio. Um, well, not that I couldn't continue, but there was sort of a, a time in my life where I, I was, I felt like I needed to sort of make a bit of a decision. I, you know, it was either I was going to 
drive for an hour to get to physio, do an hour of physio, and then get back in the car, drive an hour. And for me, I wanted to, I, I wanted to just play sport. So it, it, I was kind of pulled in a, in a different direction, but that's not to say that you can't do more of the stuff at home. And that's something that I, I wish that I had stayed, that I was doing on a, on a continual basis and have had been now I'm doing a lot more of it, but I'm feeling the effects of it. So I would definitely recommend that. Nice. That's cool. That's really good. Um, I might try and have a look on YouTube and see if I can find some, uh, some videos of some good stretches and things. And I might put them in the show notes. Hey, Satara, where can people find out more about you and follow your journey? Um, yeah. Where, where can people get in, in contact with you? Uh, well, I'm on all of social media. So Facebook, Instagram, um, just pop in my name, uh, Tara Giannis and it should, should pop up. And then, uh, I've also got, uh, my website, um, where, um, the, there's a little bit more about me and adaptive mountain biking and that's, uh, Tara Giannis industries, uh, com. Fantastic. Hey, well, it's been so amazing chatting with you. I I really look forward to meeting you in person and uh, maybe getting out on those adaptive mountain bike trails. I haven't tried wheelchair tennis or basketball yet, and it's something I've always wanted to do. So I think you've inspired me to maybe go out and try that this uh, this summer. I mean, it's summer down here in New Zealand, uh, your winter, but uh, but I'm I know some people that are into that, and uh, yep. So I think that's the motivation I need to go out and give that a whirl. <laughs> and uh you know if you find yourself down down this this way uh be sure to to look me up and let's uh let's hang out absolutely i'd love to thanks so much for the time and um you know what you what you're doing at adaptify it's uh it's really great for our community so yeah keep doing what you're doing thanks so much great stuff all right enjoy the rest of your day catch up with you soon All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms, at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind the scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.